If I were to tell you there is a series of conspiracy theories involving the Denver International Airport, you might roll your eyes. It's true though. And the airport even has a blog called the DEN Files that details the various rumors behind the airport. I'll give you an example of one theory. During the airport construction, the project went around $2 billion over budget. Clearly that's evidence that a series of underground tunnels built beneath the airport will serve as a bunker for the elite when the world comes to an end, right? Or the tunnels serve as a home to reptile people and aliens. Well, it's probably like a timeshare and the reptile people get the place for the winter. Convinced? Well, suppose you search the Denver Post for articles about the airport. In that case, you'll find, for starters, that to entice United Airlines to establish a terminal at the airport, the project had to include a computerized baggage system that shuttled luggage through underground tunnels. They spent almost $200 million to design and test the system, and it didn't work. The system actually became known as the baggage mangler, because the sharp turns in the tunnel would fling luggage off the carts. The tagging system was also faulty and sent luggage to the wrong planes. It's the kind of hot mess that makes you say, so that's how they went over budget. But no. Some believe the Illuminati's headquarters were built beneath the airport, and others say the underground tunnels connect to various government facilities. Go ahead, roll your eyes, but there's something at work with conspiracy theories that not many social scientists pay attention to. The truth. No, 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 no. I'm not suggesting all theories are true but they often contain a kernel of truth, which makes them more convincing. Conspiracies can be useful to sociologists and other social scientists through these kernels. They can teach us about a given society's beliefs and general concerns and help us counter false beliefs. Today, sociology is going to ruin conspiracy theories. As always, let's start by setting definitions. What is a conspiracy theory? It's not surprising that this is a difficult question. The term is often applied to various types of speech simply because people disagree with what's being said. This is a feature, not a bug. The introduction of the Routledge Handbook of Conspiracy Theories notes that tying a negative connotation to the term allows the state to quote-unquote draw the line between legitimate and illegitimate discourse. The term is often used as an insult aimed at those of a particular class and education level or attributed to people with mental health issues. It may be easier to begin by defining what a conspiracy theory is not. A conspiracy theory differs from quote-unquote fake news or disinformation in two ways. According to Michael Butter, a professor of American literary and cultural history at the University of Tübingen, and Peter Knight, who teaches American studies at the University of Manchester, Fake news lacks a sinister plot, and those who produce it know that it's false. Producers of conspiracy theories, on the other hand, believe what they're saying, or at the very least, they think it might be true. And part of what makes conspiracy theories so hard to define is that sometimes conspiracies are true. In 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service and the Tuskegee Institute began the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. Of the 600 black men included in the study without their consent, 399 had syphilis and were not informed of treatments that could have saved their lives. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, quote, in exchange for taking part in the study, the men received free medical exams, free meals, and burial insurance, end quote. The study went on for 40 years, even though penicillin was found to be a highly effective method of treating syphilis in 1945. The Tuskegee syphilis study was finally shut down in the 1970s as the unethical treatment of the men came to light. 
Okay, so conspiracy theories are different from disinformation or fake news because the people who produce them believe them. And sometimes the theories are true. After all, conspiracies happen. But we still don't have a proper definition. Conspiracy theories can be a set of ideas or beliefs, and they can be ideas and beliefs around social phenomena constructed from a historical context. If you're thinking, you just defined social theory, it won't be hard to convince you why this is problematic for sociology. There is a reason conspiracy theorists have been called amateur sociologists. Now we have to distinguish conspiracy theories from social theories. As this show often reminds listeners, social phenomena are complex. For example, take disasters. Saying climate change is the sole cause of wildfires ignores a hundred years of terrible forest management and housing policies that have pushed people into high-risk areas. Increasingly hotter temperatures are just one variable. Conspiracy theories, on the other hand, may attribute problems to a single person or group like a cabal. Another distinction is that conspiracy theories are always born out of a moment of anxiety. Social theories can also come from a moment of group anxiety. Think back to season one's episode on normality and how the 1960s and 70s upended sociological frameworks. But social theory isn't always derived from anxiety. What do I mean by moments of anxiety? German political activist Franz Neumann referred to these as times when, one, the masses find themselves endangered, two, the masses cannot understand the historical context, and three, anxiety created by the situation can become neurotic anxiety via manipulation. The final ingredient in a conspiracy theory, at least a successful one, is a kernel of truth. If you're old enough, think back to the 1980s and the AIDS crisis. There was a conspiracy theory that the CIA created HIV to kill black people. The theory attributes a deadly disease to a government agency, and the disease was killing people while the government did nothing. The belief was constructed as the result of the historical mistreatment of specific populations by the government and high rates of HIV among black men. And when you consider the Tuskegee experiment several decades earlier, it doesn't seem that unbelievable. That is the kernel of truth. Of course, it ignores systemic issues of race and class that leave black men vulnerable to drug addiction, one of the ways in which HIV spreads. There's also the intersection of social expectations and religious beliefs that prevent black men from publicly coming out as gay. The problem with social theories is that they can be too complicated for the public. Maybe that's a reflection of the state of science communication, that we don't do a good enough job explaining our research to the public. Perhaps it's the effect of locking up research behind paywalls and forcing people to look for alternative explanations on YouTube or TikTok. Maybe it's a little from column A, column B, and column C, whatever that is. The result is that people are looking for different explanations for their problems. We have a general idea of how researchers come up with social theories, but how are conspiracy theories produced? The cultural production of conspiracy theories is quite complicated, but thankfully there are experts out there I can ask. My name is Jesse Walker. I'm the book's editor at Reason Magazine, and you're talking with me because I um, wrote a book called The United States of Paranoia. Yeah, can you give us a brief overview of the book? I know that it goes through a lot of history, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the three-hour short version. Um, <laughs> there's two basic theses to the book, I could say, or two basic ideas it's built around. One is that conspiracy theories are pervasive, pervasive in American history, but I should say I'm not saying that America is different from other countries in that regard. I'm just, America is what I'm writing about. And when I say pervasive, I mean common across the political spectrum in uh, the center, as well as, you know, the far right, the far left, 
And in fact, you know, lots of important historical uh, decisions have been made because of of, uh, of leaders, you know, belief in um, one kind of conspiracy or another. And then the other big theme is that even when a um, conspiracy theory doesn't say anything true about the subjects of the theory itself, um, if it catches on, it says something true about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. So it's still worth looking at and um, just sort of examining it the way a folklorist or an anthropologist would say, what does this tell us about these people at this particular place and time? The first half of the book lays out five um, sort of primal mythic narratives that um, I, you can categorize different conspiracy theories into. They don't all fit cleanly fit into one category or another. There's lots of you know hybrids and uh, and then ones that shift from one to another over time. It's it's just it's a taxonomy for just for the purposes of getting our minds around um, a big subject. And then the second half of the book looks at, well, I was going to say the last half century of, of American history, but I guess it's been almost a decade since the book came out. So what was then the last um, half century of American history uh, sort of using that model that I laid out in the first half of the book as, uh, as a prism um, for understanding things? There's a great paragraph at the beginning of your book, a conspiracy story that catches on becomes a form of folklore. It says something true about the anxieties and experiences of the people who believe it and repeat it, even if it says nothing true about the objects of the theory itself. And this is what I've been interrogating in the podcast is people tend to dismiss theories, but you're saying that there's a lot we can learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. To give an easy example, if a story catches on in the 1980s, it says uh, white doctors are injecting black babies with AIDS. The fact that it's not true doesn't mean that uh, there's nothing to learn from the fact that this uh, story caught on. And of course, there are, you know, even more offensive versions of that where it's Jewish doctors and so on. I mean, you can speak to underlying tensions and so on. But even setting that aside, you know, this uh, and that also opens the door to a long history of medical rumors, conspiratorial medical rumors, in this case, in the black community, though. Heaven knows that's not the only place where medical rumors have taken hold, as we've all learned recently or relearned recently. And of course, sometimes um, those rumors are based in fact. Other times they're completely untrue, as with you know the AIDS baby rumors. Sometimes, you know, in the midst of time, we don't know how true one is. I mean, there were all these rumors about in the um, antebellum era and, and afterwards about night doctors, uh, as they were called kidnapping American Blacks and, uh, you know, doing experiments on them. And we know there were some experiments. We know some of these stories are implausible. We don't know exactly where the barrier between the two is, because this is all basically, you know, oral folklore about stuff that, you know, generally there were not lots of written records left of, but enough, enough that did survive that we know that, you know, parts of them were true. But I've, I've gotten a little afield from your, from your original question. Bit, I mean, that sort of speaks to um, the ways you can just sort of jump into something and a hole and start digging further and see what you find. Um, and it opens up all these different um, ways of looking at American history through people's fears. Yeah. And that's a really good example because I talked about this idea of HIV spreading through the black community and how a lot of that is founded on a mistrust of the medical community because of things like the Tuskegee experiment. Right. I mean, well, that's, that's the most um, famous example. And when people ask about what are some real conspiracies in history? That's one of my go-to examples, one of lots of people's go-to examples because it's become famous. And people don't necessarily know specifically about the Tuskegee experiment. 
I mean, certainly rumors like this were circulating before that was exposed in the 1970s. And it's not like everybody since then is familiar with what happened. But people who've had experiences with high-handed doctors um, who mistreat you in particular ways are, you know, open to believing this sort of larger stories about villainous behavior on the part of those high-handed doctors and and uh, other people in the medical profession, I, I should say. You know, I mean, you go to a hospital, you're not just dealing with doctors, and maybe it's the surly bureaucrat at the front desk who, who's really setting you off. So yeah, and again, that's just, that's just one example. Sometimes it's not as sympathetic as, as an, an example as that. You know, I mean, it, it can just spark from there being a group, that, a, a, a religious group or ethnic group, or just a subculture that you're having contact with, but you don't really understand what's happening in their own community or, or mini community. Um, and you imagine things to sort of fill the gaps. And what you imagine has a lot to do with, I mean, well, in the first case with your anxieties, and sometimes also with projection. In the 19th century, there were all these just insane conspiracy theories about Mormons with like these sexual um, elements to it, which basically a lot of it boiled down to people imagining what they would do if they had multiple wives. And then uh, it was ascribing that to these people that they hear have multiple wives. So it's, uh, this, again, this manifests itself in different ways, but again and again and again. Yeah. In the, in the book you refer, so in that particular example, that would be the enemy outside you refer to different types of these beliefs. Yeah. And I was interested because so many conspiracy theories revolve around the presidency. You know, Americans tend to attribute a lot of blame and praise to one person when our government was established on this system of checks and balances that should prevent the executive branch from controlling everything, right? But in, in this book, you call the enemy above. But when we look at real world examples of, you know, whether it's the Trump administration battling the judicial branch over immigration or we're watching Biden struggle to move legislation within his own party. As a country, why do we fear our president so much? Well, I mean, there's a few different answers to that. In some cases, of course, presidents are up to no good, whether or not they're able to um, to uh, uh, enact, fully enact their agenda. Um, and also the executive branch is broader than just the president. Not everything that the CIA or FBI has done, you know, that was illegal over the years had the president's connivance. So often it did, you know, I mean... I mean, it's there was during the uh, church committee um, investigations, Frank Church very much wanted not to find out that John F. Kennedy knew about CIA, you know, assassination plots. And it turns out, oh, well, he did. Um, sorry, your hero is also um, uh, indicted here. But beyond that, a U.S. president, I mean, one of his jobs has sort of evolved into becoming the national fall guy. And I mean, it, it, we see that where, the, you know, you get the blame or the credit for the economy regardless of whether your actual policies had much to do with how it's doing, which often they don't. I mean, obviously, policy can affect business cycle. I would never deny that. But a lot of it is, is, is just outside of his control. And uh, that's just sort of understood as the way the system has evolved to work. There's, uh, in, in a lot of ways, we need a way to talk about executive power that's not saying it's not always the executive. We have this vast, sprawling executive branch, both the, uh, the national security agencies, but also just administrative agencies where, you know, people don't have recourse to normal courts and, and, and things like that. And, and it, it's perfectly um, legitimate, in my view, to have, you know, resentments of how, it, of how it behaves. But often, I mean, from my political point of view, one of the worst things Trump did was when he um, 
loosen the rules for bombings in uh, the in the Middle East, you know, the air war in the Middle East. And what he basically said was, um, I'm letting you guys to hear. It was like an expansion of executive power in the sense that the executive branch could do more. But the actual executive was taking his hands off and saying, I'm trusting you guys to do what's right. And again, that's a different people might have different views on that particular issue. That's just that's my politics. But the phrase people have sort of fallen on recently is deep state, but that has its own odd connotations that, you know, have made people reluctant to use it as well. So, yeah. So it's really interesting reading the book and, you know, you start from the beginning of the U.S. itself, from colonization up to, up to, as you said, recent as of when the book was published, but seeing some of these conspiracy theories and how they are used even today so in the very beginning of the book, you're talking about, what was it, a malaria outbreak and how one party was blaming the other party for poisoning or killing members of, and, and it made me think of COVID-19 and some of the conspiracy theories that went around, like, why are only Republicans catching COVID-19? And it just seems like we really are still that very paranoid country. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, I, one thing that, I learned in, uh, I mean, I knew going into this that conspiracy theories had been around since the very beginning. I was not surprised that there was a long history of them. The fact that I knew that is part of what made me want to write the book. But the way that the basic structure of the story often says the same with just different names and groups plugged in at the appropriate point, that may have been a surprise, or if not a surprise, something that I did not expect to see happening as obviously as, as, as it does. And I use the word paranoia when discussing conspiracy theories. You use the term paranoia, but you make it extremely clear that this is not tied to mental health. It's just there's a lack of a better term, right? Yeah, I'm not diagnosing everybody in this book with mental illness um, because I would be diagnosing the entire human race with mental illness. I think everybody who's not in a literally in a coma is uh, capable of imagining conspiracies to fill the gaps where they don't know what's going on. Um, I'm certainly capable of doing that. As I said earlier, you know, the leaders of this country are. So I'm using the word colloquially. I mean, there's a long history of using it that way. The other word I sort of thought about using was conspiracism, but not only is that more of jargony, but it's at times I kind of moved away from even talking directly about conspiracy theories into a sort of broader sort of dread that that word doesn't really quite address. So I just figured if I said at the very beginning, look, I'm not doing nine out of 10 doctors agree Barry Goldwater is crazy thing, you know, that I'm actually uh, just using this word in, in a different way, then I could just proceed from there. And also because I, I, I think um, it's clear that I, I write in some cases sympathetically about, um, you know, the, the people involved. So I it hopefully it's clear that I'm not just saying, oh, you don't, you all belong in the loony bin. Yeah. So the phrase that I've heard through some of the research I've done is some of people call it amateur sociology. Uh, conspiracy theories are amateur sociology because this academic take is that theories result from people trying to make sense of complicated events. Do you think that there's a little bit of both this paranoia and this amateur sociology going on because sometimes it's easier to place the blame on one group or one person than to understand how complicated society or everything is really. It, I mean, that's a real phenomenon, although I do, um, I do always like to stress that 
I, I don't like to reduce conspiracy theories to one explanation. Often people will say a version of what you just said. They don't usually use the phrase amateur sociology because they're not sociologists. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that's fine. But people will say, well, don't conspiracy theories come from people who want to have a simple explanation for complicated events or, or even they can't handle the thought that one lone gunman changed history in this way and so on. And I think that's often true. I don't, I don't deny that this phenomenon frequently happens. But, you know, if you spend a lot of time reading and or talking with uh, conspiracy theorists, you, you realize that people have a variety of motives. There are some people who just love, oh, it's almost the opposite of what you just said. They love to make things complicated. <laughs> um, they, they, they want a sprawling web. And especially in some cases, um, especially some folks who are kind of in the Charles Fort tradition, they just love anything that messes up any neat model. Um, you know, what can we introduce to this that makes people think a little bit further? Maybe it doesn't quite fit with the last thing we introduced. But that's fine. I'm not building a bigger story. I'm, I'm just trying to burst all the existing stories. So, so yeah, my, my, that, that was my long answer. My short answer is sometimes that's what's going on. Not always. Yeah, it seems like the whole QAnon, that's probably a good example of making things more complicated than simplifying things. <laughs> Yeah, well, QAnon, that's one where the theory itself, you have people coming in for multiple reasons. And part of what makes that sort of difficult to study, well, not to study, but to fully make sense of, is that we are pretty sure that a, a more than tiny proportion of the people who participated in those forums were just having a laugh and are just trying to introduce weird ideas. But then... Some of those weird ideas they introduce get adopted completely seriously by people who are in it who are, you know, actually trying to make sense of the world. Again, we, we have good reasons to believe. Again, not all of these people are, are serious. We absolutely know many of these people are serious. Um, you know, they actually show up in person, you know, with the QAnon sites. And it's not quite clear which stories, you know, actually originated with the serious theorists and which one made the jump, you know, and I'm just, and that's just one of the problems, you know, I'm just, that's the most extreme problem in terms of like determining where all the weird complexity of QAnon comes from. You've also got these rival theories within QAnon. I'm um, like one of the most infamous stories that people identify with QAnon, the whole JFK Jr. is still alive idea has actually been denounced by Q as untrue, but it still has this dissident faction that believes it. I mean, it's, very much like watching a splintering church. And in fact, there are kind of Q churches out there, like literal theological study groups that are somewhere between um, a QAnon discussion group and, and an actual, you know, I don't know if church is quite the right word. I think some of them are churches, but, you know, a, a religious group. Now, I do think that you can look at some particular reasons, some kind of simplifying reasons why Q caught on, at least with some audiences. And in particular, I think that Given how you were talking earlier about the difficulties Trump had, he was a very, objectively speaking, a very weak chief executive. And by weak, I mean he had trouble enacting his agenda. He came from a world that was not a world of legislation. He did not have, you know, the, I mean, quite apart from, you know, any questions of personal competence, which we could get into, he really was also just kind of, you know, in, in a strange land when it came to like passing bills and issuing executive orders that would stand up in court and so on. He hired people who turned out not to have the same agenda as, as he did and in the areas where he hired them. So he was basically this weak and constantly stymied chief executive whose chief talent was getting attention for himself. And I think among people who had put their hopes in Trump and, and liked them, 
having an alternative narrative where he's actually a super competent chief executive leading a secret war against child abusers, you know, one of the worst crimes people, you know, can think of. And there's an appeal to that. It's not the only thing that, that QAnon came from, but I think that that's underlying a lot of it. And if it sort of ends up being more complicated than it needs to be, well, a lot of these people are not experienced system builders, you know, it's uh, especially when it comes to people who are sort of... Um, they're not political people, but they follow politics, if you know what I mean. You know, the, the person on Facebook of Democrat, Republican, whatever perspective, who likes to keep posting links to things they've seen, but um, isn't necessarily, you know, deeply informed. That's not the main thing they do in their lives. Often it's easy to um, just sort of focus on what you're grabbing onto that day rather than thinking about how it all fits together or you think about how it all fits together in this QAnon forum where you're following other people who are there. All right, well, now we think this, you know. So I, again, I, this is kind of getting me back to different people have different personalities and different motives. Um, but yeah, I, I, I certainly agree in some cases, you know, QAnon is, is those people just seem to like complication for the sake of complication. This makes me think of the term fake news. So some have said the difference between fake news and conspiracies is that the perpetrators of fake news don't believe what they're saying while conspiracy theorists do. But do you think the line is a little blurry as we were just talking about fake news can act as a basis for a conspiracy theory and then grow sometimes in a different direction, like with Q? Yeah, I mean, fake news is one of those phrases that gets used in different ways. There was some rapid evolution in how it how it was deployed, especially, but not only when, you know, Trump co-opted it. So I, I'm wary of even making a statement about like the distinction, because I think the actual, the, the word you might be reaching for is disinformation. I mean, disinformation is misinformation that's deliberately spread. Right. It's, it's also uh, itself the conspiratorial form of misinformation. You are saying conspirators are behind this particular misinformation. And, and sometimes you get into this kind of Hall of Mirrors things where people then start imagining very dubious conspiracies about who's behind misinformation um, that's spreading. You know, they're projecting conspiracies onto the misinformation and they're imagining a disinformation puppet master. So, yeah, I, it's um, the disinformation is certainly a real phenomenon. You also have people making up stories knowingly or half knowingly, not necessarily with the level of intent that you have with what you think of it as, as a disinformation campaign being hatched by an intelligence agency or something it's, it's more on the level of you know what will help me sell these supplements or um or or even you know how am i going to um explain this latest twist um that calls some of the things i said before into um into question and and that last uh, phenomenon in particular is one where you can um have people who are convincing themselves that they're not making something up, even if the motivated reasoning is so strong that it kind of goes beyond just the kind of uh, sort of naive theorizing that you see elsewhere. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. This has been great. Yeah, well, thanks for your interest.
back to the Denver International Airport. Hopefully with everything we just discussed, we can look at the conspiracy theories there in a new light. But besides the underground tunnels, what else is going on? I went straight to the source. My name is Stephanie Figueroa, and I am Public Information Officer at Denver International Airport. Some of our other conspiracies, so for example, our time capsule conspiracy, that's a that's a fun one because we have this time capsule that's on display in our main terminal, and it was presented to the airport when it was completed back in 1995. And the time capsule has a couple things that people tend to kind of gravitate towards, which is one, the Freemason logo. And it also says somewhere in there, it says the New World Airport Commission. And so people think that, I mean, you know, the Freemasons have their own conspiracies, I guess, tied to them, but really they're just an organization that helps facilitate the openings of a lot of public buildings. So that was really their involvement in that. And and the New World Airport Commission was meant to read New World Airport. So kind of just speaking to the fact that it was a a new state-of-the-art airport at the time. And the three organizations listed as members of the commission do, in fact, exist. We have a conspiracy surrounding the Illuminati. (laughs) So that's one of the most common conspiracy theories around the airport is that Den serves as an underground facility for the global elite, the Illuminati or the New World Order command bunkers. Um, Other theories suggest that an alien headquarters or secret underground prison camp is in our tunnels. <laughs> um, and really, like I said, it's true. There are several floors underneath the airport. We use a series of underground tunnels to run the train and, and the luggage carts. So, so there's that. <laughs> um, what are some other ones? One of our, um, our public art pieces, uh, Mustang, he's subject to a lot of conspiracies as well. Um, He's big, he's blue, (laughs) he's an uh, iconic part of Denver. Um, Mustang is probably one of the most famous pieces of art uh, as part of Den's art collection. Um, While some people call this sculpture Blucifer, um, you know, a demonic blue horse or other names, uh, Mustang, you know, he's caused some people to think the sculpture is cursed due to it falling on the artist, Luis Jimenez, in 2006, two years before the airport adopted it. So it's true that a portion of Mustang fell onto Jimenez, um, and he did die from the injuries. But Mustang had long been in the works, and he's similar to several other pieces by this artist. And while it was an unfortunate and tragic accident, his sons and studio staff actually helped to complete the piece after his death. And the infamous red eyes, (laughs) his neon red eyes that are very uh, prominent, especially at, at night when you drive by or maybe you fly over the airport and you're you look down and you see those bright red eyes shooting out um the red eyes are a tribute to his father so his father owned a neon sign shop and jimenez worked there throughout his childhood so really you know we love mustang we see him as like our fearless protector of the airport his design was to speak to the strength and energy that exemplified like the american west um the details uh were modeled after Jimenez's own horse, Blackjack. So yeah, today Mustang, you know, he's he's a controversial piece of art, but he's also become one of the most iconic in the airport's collection. And people in Denver, if you're a local, you kind of see him as like this like iconic figure. And I've even met people who have Mustang tattooed <laughs> on them. Um, so you know, love him or hate him, but he's 
he's very popular. It's interesting hearing you talking about some of these theories because as you're saying them, my mind is going to very similar. So like the underground tunnels, I know for a fact that under Walt Disney World, there are underground tunnels underneath the Magic Kingdom that go, employees use it to go from one part of the park to the other. So they're not seen on stage. And nobody has conspiracy, well, as far as I know, <laughs> has conspiracy theories about secret underground layers underneath Walt Disney World. Now, now maybe that I've said that, people are going to pick up on that. But And then I hear about you know Mustang, and there are many instances of artists, and especially when it comes to large structural art. Uh, I, I believe, and I, I'm totally forgetting the name, I, I believe there was an artist who set up uh, umbrellas in the desert and one of them came loose and, and hit him and killed him. I should note that the sculpture I'm talking about here is Christo and Jean-Claude's The Umbrellas, which was on display in Japan and California in 1991. The exhibit closed three days earlier than scheduled because high winds picked up one of the umbrellas and crushed a spectator. Christo himself was not killed by the sculpture. We don't talk about those pieces as being cursed. It's just accidents happen, right? So the reason I wanted to talk to you is because when we think of conspiracy theories, a lot of people tend to dismiss them, right? We think of them, we think, well, really? (laughs) Aliens? Um, But your marketing team decided to just embrace these theories. Can you talk about the decision there? Yeah, totally. So, I mean... Uh, to put it simply, it was kind of like a, if you can't beat them, join them <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so in the past few years, we've decided to embrace the theories as part of our identity. It's a fun way to connect with our passengers. You know, here at Den, we're, we're always looking for opportunities to surprise passengers and connect with them and, and just make our airports stand out and, you know, just more unique and, and kind of a, an entertaining and memorable place, unlike maybe a lot of other airports. So The conspiracy theories really are just another tool that we use to poke fun at ourselves while separating ourselves from from other airports. We're using the conspiracy theories right now as our part in our dust messaging. So you'll see some walls up throughout the main terminal while that is under construction. We're, you know, we're doing a huge project. Our Great Hall project is renovating our, our Jefferson terminal. And while that's under construction, you know, we have walls up with with certain conspiracy theory messaging, you know, what's behind this wall? Is it more more aliens or just, you know, more security? <laughs> that sort of thing. So we poke fun at ourselves that way. And yeah, we've we've incorporated it into different construction milestones and events and things like that. And I have fun with it whenever I'm because I also run our social media channels. So I have fun with it that way too. Whenever we post updates about construction, people are like, hmm, really, you know, like that really what you're doing and then i kind of you know i don't i don't say yes or no i just kind of go with it because why not and so i think it's a really fun way to connect with passengers so yeah we know some people really believe in these theories and all i can say is i've been down in the tunnels and i have encountered an alien who's not friendly (laughs) just kidding (laughs) well thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me yeah of course i hope that answers all your questions So the lesson here is that the LAX marketing team needs to step it up. You have a literal spaceship sitting in front of your terminals. Okay, the real lesson is for now, bringing cold hard facts to the table is the best we can do. From a social science perspective, that means better communication. But we should also listen to conspiracy theories. They might tell us something about the very society we are studying. I'd like to thank my guests, Jesse Walker and Stephanie Figueroa, 
This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. You can find me on Twitter at, at Matt Sedlar or the podcast at Sociology Ruins. The music you've been listening to is by me. Join me next month as Sociology Ruins Something Completely Different. Bye.